A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Justin Cunningham, who worked as a tech lead and data architect on data platforms at Netflix, Yelp, and Atlassian over the last eight and a half years. In that time, Justin was involved in initiatives to push data ownership to developers and domains. An interesting point, one I'm not sure is universal, but at least it's useful to consider, is Justin saw a lot of success at Yelp focusing on data availability, getting data to a place it could be found and kind of played with, experimented with, was a bigger driver for success than focusing initially on data quality. Once people discovered what data was available and how they might use it, the organization was able to work towards getting that data to an acceptable quality level kind of talked about this in one of the Mesh musings about the concept of a speculative data product. Another point Justin made was figure out which you want to optimize for in general, getting things right up front or testing, changing, iterating. He believes in optimizing for that change. Create an adaptive process and optimize for learning and you'll get to where you want to go in the end in a much better and easier fashion. Keep it simple and focus on value delivery. It will set up more tractable bets. At Yelp, they were trying to ETL a huge amount of data in their data warehouse to build reports for the C-suite, but they were never really going to get enough data ingested to really meet their goals. It was taking them two weeks to create each new set of ETLs, and that was just creation, not accounting for the maintenance. It was looking like 
they'd need something like 5x the number of people to really hit what they were trying to do. What Justin found the most useful at Yelp was to focus on getting as much quote-unquote usable data in an automated way. They achieved this initially through the data mesh anti-pattern of copying directly from the underlying operational data stores and then building business logic on top of it. But that data getting into the hands of the data team meant there could be an initial value assessment. Once they proved out there could be value in the data, the conversation with the domains, you know, the developers, the, the real people who knew the, the data best, was much easier to get them to care about providing clean and reliable data. Justin mentioned the same thing Juanis Rosiers mentioned in his episode. There are operational and analytical workloads, but there should absolutely not be that separation when it comes to data. There isn't operational and analytical data. Data can be used for whatever purpose is is good for it to use for. Data from operational systems is useful for analytics and vice versa. One thing that really helped developers understand how to share their data was thinking of data sets as being similar to public APIs. So when you do go to them and to talk about that, uh, about sharing their data, if, if you kind of connected to the API concept, that helped a lot in, in Justin's experience. At Netflix, there were just too many bespoke data sets. It made it very hard to manage quality. What they found that worked was a data certification program for data sets, creating tooling to prove a data set was complete and accurate. That and upping the amount of focus on data set reuse significantly helped them to combat that data sprawl. Back to uh, data accessibility and data availability versus quality. For Justin, he believes data analysts and data scientists initially care far more about getting data access as you can work to improve the data quality later, especially if there is a clear owner. I discussed this again in in a mesh musing about the speculative data products, but a key hack for them was being able to mark data as low quality. This was something I talked about of if you say all data that's on the data mesh is of uh, high quality, people automatically will move to start trusting it. So how do you make it so that people can understand that they've got to do their homework? Is this <laughs> data in a format that's uh, really of use in production or not? On driving buy-in for data producing teams, Justin again talked to proving there was value in data before the producers were bought in. Asking them to serve their data upfront without a clear specific use case was very tough. The return on investment or ROI was very squishy. Why would they want to do this? So they got out low quality data initially and then came back to producing teams to up quality and reliability once they proved certain data was valuable. This is uh, somewhat similar to the emerging data mesh pattern of creating your data products for a consumer focused use case. It might be a source aligned data product but it should still be initially serving a specific purpose with a targeted outcome. And then the data product can grow from there. To sum up one of Justin's points he touched on repeatedly, he recommends to create a pool of low effort data, which will inherently have low quality. Use that for initial research into what might be useful. Focus on maximizing accessibility. You can have governance and use things like join restrictions or give 
consumers an ability to self-certify that they are using the data responsibly. Once you get to the use cases, then you can go for the data mesh quality data products. Justin also shared his thoughts on how the way we do data lineage is broken. We should look to, to do data lineage declaratively instead of just as a reference. This should flow through both the schema registry and the data catalog. What is the data movement supposed to be? This would enable us to much more easily test data flows and alert downstream users of upcoming changes that might break what they're doing. So with that, let's go ahead and get to the episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. So uh, super, super excited for this episode today. I've got uh, the world famous Justin Cunningham, who <laughs> has been uh, you know, doing a lot of stuff, uh, very interesting things in the data space for a while, uh, was at Netflix with their kind of naming collision type of thing called uh, Data Mesh as well, that just has a, a similar goal, but different approach. Um, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of stuff like that. I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of poke on that. But what, what we were really looking at, at talking about today was organizational challenges relative to data mesh, because a lot of people are running into this of, you know, one of the, the kind of three big questions that I get is, you know, how do we get these pesky developers to just give us their freaking data? We want them to do what we want them to do. So make them do it. How do we make them do it? And it's, you know, that, that organizational challenge issue is something that um, a lot of people have talked about and, and there's uh, just not as much of um really good kind of resources out there about frameworks on how to, how to do that. And then we were also kind of just in the, the pre-talk talking about lineage and things like that. And I think uh, Justin has a really interesting approach to that. So hopefully we'll get into a little bit around uh, how you, we might be able to think about lineage as well. Um, I know Jamak has said, maybe we don't even need to put lineage in. And it's like, well, once we get to super, super duper trustable data products, maybe we don't, maybe it isn't as as uh, as needed way down the line. But until then, people aren't going to trust unless they've got the lineage. So, um, but with, with that uh, kind of upfront uh, about what, what we're going to talk about, Justin, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of uh, an introduction to yourself and your background, and then we'll kind of jump into the different topics at hand. Sure. Um... I'm Justin Cunningham. I've been working in the data space uh, probably for about 10 to 15 years now um, in both my own startups early on and then in some big companies, uh, most notably uh, Yelp and Netflix. Uh, And in both of Yelp and Netflix, I ended up working on projects that are pretty similar in concept, uh, or at least in terms of goals to data mesh. Uh, The Netflix data mesh project, as Scott mentioned, which is uh, kind of an unfortunate naming collision. Uh, and then before that, uh, a collection of projects at Yelp called the Data Pipeline, which is really kind of like the real-time streaming infrastructure to be able to move data around the business uh, with the aim of really pushing uh, the ownership of data out to developers and product teams. Uh, so I've been working in the space practically for a long time. Yeah, and that uh, that 
ownership uh, on the developer side is, uh, whether that's via technology or just organizational structure, I think we're, it's, it's, a, it's a major, major challenge. So um, why don't we start with kind of what you saw that, you know, did, were you brought in originally at Yelp or, or Netflix to work on that? Or was that something that you kind of came in and then they were like, we need to do this? Like, how, how did that start to evolve? So that way we can kind of talk about how people might take your learnings and uh, how to, whether it's getting, getting started or down the road as to what challenges came up of, of all those things. Yeah, great, great question. Um, and it, it's pretty different in both places. So I'll start with Yelp since that one was earlier. Um, at, at Yelp, I was working on a team called uh, Business Analytics and Metrics, so the BAM team. Uh, and what the BAM team was basically trying to do was like their first attempt at building out a data engineering team. Uh, they were trying to ETL a bunch of data in the business uh, into a centralized data warehouse so that uh, a analysis team uh, could get a better understanding from a data perspective of how the business was operating. Uh, and that analysis team was largely building reports and stuff like that for the C-suite uh, so that they could kind of drive and steer the business. Uh, and I got to looking at it. Uh, and the challenge that I saw was that with the number of engineers that we had, we were never actually going to finish the project. That is, we weren't going to have enough data uh, ETL'd in, in a usable state so that we would actually be able to succeed in our goals. Uh, and we were kind of going about this in like the normal data engineering way. So we were basically taking uh, a collection of all the data in the organization and then trying to prioritize it and getting through a few data sets. It took maybe two to four weeks to build out a new set of ETLs, and then you had ongoing maintenance from there. Uh, so the the overall organizational size that we would have needed to actually be able to succeed would have been likely five times or more uh, than the number of people that we had. Um, so I started looking for a, a computational or more infrastructural approach to be able to get the data, uh, which kind of led me into um, looking at something like Data Mesh, where we could move ownership out to product teams and focus more on um, getting the data wholesale, focusing more on ubiquity rather than on uh, quality, at least initially, so that we could we could get the data first and then focus on improving the data quality later on. Uh, I worked on that for about seven years, so we got to go full circle and really, uh, toward the end, focus much more on the data quality side of things. Um, at Netflix, uh, when I when I started the project there, I was actually looking at it, and I didn't want to do the same set of work again. <laughs> uh, so I was actually trying to avoid it initially. Um, and it, as it turned out, there was already a bunch of work underway. There was a project called Delta, uh, which was um, pulling data in the studio space uh, and trying to build out like a centralized data warehousing collection, uh, building a bunch of infrastructure. And there were infrastructural challenges associated with that. Uh, because of the way that it was designed. So I, I effectively took a bunch of the learnings from what we'd built at Yelp and kind of pulled that into the Netflix uh, data mesh product uh, and then changed the scope of it a bit, expanded it, uh, and uh, really adapted it so that it would work well in the organization. And then obviously, I mean, Netflix has got world-class engineers, so it presented a unique opportunity to build something uh, you know, infrastructural that would end up working uh, really well at large scale, uh, and um, kind of taking some of the concepts uh, you know that I developed earlier and refining them uh, to be uh, you know a, really a great fit, I think, for the business as a whole. That, so I, I want to go back to one thing you said about the the Yelp thing, which I thought was really interesting. Was started by caring more about the data availability than the quality. 
um, initially. And I thought that was really interesting. And could we talk about what you mean by quality there? Because within what I'm finding within data mesh of the people who are kind of succeeding early is that they're not caring about the, they're caring about the quality as in the trustability and that they understand what this data is, that it's, it's clean data but it's not that it's the most high value data. It's not that it's the most processed data. It's not this thing where you'd go, this is the, this, this tells us all of the information versus like, hey, let's get in the mode of sharing our data in an appropriate way that people can actually understand what it is and, and uh, what, how much they can trust it. Um, and that you can have those kind of differing levels of trust and that's fine. But like, is that what you were aiming for? Or was it even just like, we just need data so that if we can, if we can get to it, we can clean it when we need to clean it? More the, more the latter, actually, initially. And I'll, I'll say that with some caveats. Um, so the thing that we were kind of competing against, which I think is helpful to understand, uh, is really um, engineering teams basically taking dumps of their databases. Or actually, in this case, um, the an analysis team sometimes connecting directly to replicas uh, and querying the underlying data. And then because of the the data not actually matching, in the sense that there's business logic applied to data you know, from, from the services uh, and you know, from the monoliths, that sort of thing. Uh, the data doesn't actually, in the database, necessarily match exactly, you know, what, what you'd want from an analysis perspective. So they were able to get to some of it that way. So what we started to do was actually um, pull the raw data out of the databases and then trans. we built some programmatic transformation infrastructure uh, to be able to look at uh, some of the business logic that existed in the monolith. Um, so we had a whole modeling layer that, that uh, encoded a bunch of business logic. So we could tell, for example, um, if a field was a UUID versus, you know, some other kind of field um, that would have a comparable type. Uh, we could also do things like automatic transformation for enums so that they were understandable. Um, so instead of it being like field value three, it was like, this is this type of business instead. Uh, and we were able to do a lot of those transformations in an automated way. So um, the goal that we had was really around getting 100% of the data across services and across the monolith uh, with completeness and with understandability, um, but not necessarily focusing a ton on the usability side of things. Like um, I, I would differentiate, when I think about a data product, I think about something where like you've got somebody kind of sitting down and purposefully designing uh, and trying to make something that's consumable. Whereas we were looking at what is the most usable thing that we can create um, with an automated system. So without anybody having to manually do anything uh, with one additional caveat, and that is, you know, eventually we would certainly like to be able to go back in and improve that data quality over time and, and actually make it much more usable. Um, but I, I think the trick there is to um, have teams care because fundamentally, like the initial problem that you run into with this kind of thing is that that many product teams just fundamentally don't care that much about the data. They don't see it as valuable. It's hard to prioritize it against, uh, you know, feature development effectively. And the, the way to, that we found that we could combat that is basically by showing that there's actually value in that data. And then when you come back with a concrete ask to a team and say, hey, we, we've developed this analysis. This data is now really important for driving the business. It's much easier to get them to prioritize making a highly usable version of that data set, especially if it's useful for them as well. Yeah, so th this is the that chicken and egg scenario of um, 
we can't tell you how valuable your data is until you get it into a state where we can use it somewhat. And and this is where I think um, like the, the folks at, at NAV in their episode were talking about, um, you know, they're, they're literally using cake to uh, entice teams to share. They, they ship them a cake. Like when, <laughs> if, if somebody publishes the, a data product under the data mesh, they get an, a literal cake in which people are keeping being like, but what does cake mean? It's like, no, it's an actual like physical. <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I mean, like I've got, I've got a great example of like finding data value in unexpected places. Like one of the projects um, that we'd worked on that ended up being super valuable uh, in the data space was basically one that was extracting um, information about which kind of camera uh was used to take a picture uh, at Yelp. Uh, and th- this might seem like it'd be really low value data. I think if you were actually designing purposefully a data product, you would probably say this is like a vanity metric piece of information. Like why would we prioritize this and kind of like maybe even strip it out? Um, but this this ended up being a piece of data that was just incredibly valuable. And the, the reason is, and the insight here is, uh, a data scientist ended up with a hypothesis that uh, if you looked for, for pictures that had been taken with really high quality cameras like DSLRs, um, the kind of person that's going to go to a restaurant and take a picture of food with a DSLR camera is probably not uh, a bad photographer generally. Uh, And that was kind of the bet. And what they found actually is that if they trained an ML model against photos taken with DSLR cameras and assumed that those were high quality photos, those photos ended up actually being in practice, like the highest quality photos on the site. And you could use that as a training set to kind of seed out uh, a filter that would then select for high quality photos. Uh, And it like made actually a pretty significant improvement in the metrics across the business as as those higher quality images um, were displayed more prominently. Uh, and it became like something that became almost a core metric. So you could say like, if you've got a business and it doesn't have any high quality photos, like what happens if you start adding high quality photos to that business, for example, like how does that change your uh, rank in search? How does that change your engagement on the page and so on? Um, and, and that kind of thing is where where I kind of push toward like ubiquity initially actually being super important. Because once you've got that insight that, hey, we can use this, uh, this you know, seemingly... Um, irrelevant piece of data uh, to drive a bunch of value for the business, getting teams to prioritize then cleaning up that data and making it much higher quality. Because initially, you know, it's obviously not great quality. Um, it becomes much easier uh, after you've, you've got that initial proof. And that's the kind of thing in the data space that I think is, is actually very, very common. Um, and I, that's why I, I tend to still lean more toward the ubiquity side of things uh, early on and actually kind of on an ongoing basis uh, and then pushing on the quality where it's been clearly defined. Yeah. Well, and, and kind of what you're talking about it though, is, is very much the, the ethos of, of data mesh in that it is about sharing data that could be used uh, for multiple purposes, right? Instead of these, what what we've seen historically in the data space is everything is custom built, custom built, custom built, right? And that it's it's very overly fit to the specific purpose instead of reusable. And so thinking about that reusability is is really crucial. But it's interesting that that even the the kind of quality metrics were, you know, I, I think this can be a you can set yourself up for a lot of pain and, and challenges if you 
give the domains a little too much um, leeway in you don't have to give us good quality data <laughs> at the start. <laughs> you know, they'll be like, well, we never have to. But um, but yeah, I think that that's an interesting insight there. Actually, can we double click in on on what you just said for a second? Because I think that's also another really interesting thing that we did at Yelp and and um, also at Netflix for that matter. And that is um, really trying to blend operational and analytical um, because those two have been have been blending, I think, from a technical perspective for some time. Um, and, and what I mean by that is like there's there's analytical uses of operational data and there's operational uses of, of analytical data. Um, so for example, you could develop some metric or an ML model that gets used in your product. It's basically an operational use of analytical data. Uh, and you can go the other way uh, in kind of the same way. Uh, and what, what we ended up finding that worked really well is basically building out uh, a bunch of infrastructure where if a team were to create something like a data set um, in a streaming system, um, and everything that we did was streaming for this reason, um, they could use that data operationally and then we could make use of it analytically. So any piece of data that was ever used in a streaming setting, we, we basically took advantage of that data and used it for analytical purposes as well. As well. Um, but it was really valuable for teams because they could create a data set uh, that they intended to use for something like search indexing. Uh, and they would create you know, a relatively comprehensive data set. It's used inside of the products. It's audited. Like They care a lot about the data quality there because it's, it's fundamentally powering like a core experience. Uh, and if we then are able to take that data and put it in the data warehouse, um, we've got then a data set that has multiple uses that teams are kind of like naturally um, taking advantage of. Uh, and um, the the other nice thing about that is that we started to kind of think about data sets in that way as like a public API. Uh, and we started trying to treat them as closely as we could to the way that we were treating public APIs. And the reason for that is engineering teams, especially product or feature engineering teams, already build and maintain public APIs. So they understand the hygiene around that. Like, I can't make a breaking change here because there's people relying on it. I need to understand who my consumers are. I need to understand, you know, what's going to happen downstream if I change this. I need to, I want to have an understanding of like all the systems this is going to. I want to understand what it's powering. I want to have insight into the fields that are being used and so on. Um, so all of a sudden, because we're using that data operationally, it's starting to meet those those product engineering teams where they're at, and they're starting to care a lot more about building those high-quality data sets. Um, I saw the same thing at Netflix, actually, um, in a slightly different context, where we had a lot of teams that were building bespoke data, data sets, where they were basically building like a data feed um, for different teams around the organization that needed to be able to do something, and then started kind of naturally wanting to, to condense the data feeds, because they started to realize that they had five or six different data feeds basically serving the same data set. And if they were able to, to reduce into a single data feed that wasn't you know, special built or purpose built for, for one individual use case, they could maintain a single feed that was really high quality, uh, again, kind of like the public API. And then from an analytics perspective, if we're able to grab those, those data feeds and automatically warehouse them, we can kind of... Uh, you know, take advantage of that work that the product team is already doing and then build out a bunch of tooling uh, to do things like certification of those data sets so that they're they're more broadly exposed from a discovery perspective uh, and apply a bunch of data quality tooling around understanding that that data is actually complete and accurate uh, because it benefits the engineering team to do that as well. Um, so it, it come, becomes very much an on-road, that melding of 
analytical versus operational uh, into one uh, to really change the culture around data so that it's something that product teams want to own instead of something that you're trying to kind of uh, push on them. Yeah. And I think within data mesh, um, uh, you know, as, as Jamak has talked about it, people kind of make this mistake. And, and this might just be my own interpretation of that they think that there is operational data and analytical data versus there is data set up for operational work and for analytical work, right? So an operational system absolutely should be consuming analytical data, right? One is Rosier's in his um, his episode, which was like, uh, you know, one of the very, very early episodes talked about, he's got three different types of data products, which is kind of this like primary source data product that's mostly kind of the, the raw-ish type data, you know, it's and then kind of something that's much more formed around a, a consumer uh, driven use case, whether that's consumer aligned or source aligned, you know, it doesn't really matter in, in the data mesh definition. But then he's got data application data products. And data applications are literally the, there's something that lives on the mesh just in case other people want to consume from them, but they are designed to power an operational use case, right? It's not that it's an operational, like, workload. It's not an op- it's not a transactional thing. It's not a whatever, but it's like these operational systems need analytical data. And so there was a, it, it wasn't a pipeline. It wasn't a, you know, something that, that you're having way too much sprawl from very bespoke. It was like, we're maintaining something in a productized way that these operational systems consume from. And they have SLAs and they understand it and they know what's going to be there. So we have a product for those operational systems to be able to consume from. And so I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Of Like within data mesh, you should be thinking about your, your data flowing in a full circle, right? Like everything should be feeding into each other when it makes sense, when it's data on the outside, right? Data on the inside, you don't have to share absolutely everything that you've got in your, your operational system because some of it really isn't useful. And you may want to put out like that, that camera data, right? That might not have made it into a, an actual data product initially, Versus it might have been somebody who puts out a, a speculative data product of like, hey, we've got some like speculative data sets. They don't meet our, our quality threshold to be a data product. But like, does that, is this useful to anybody? Does anybody want to play around with this? Is this some, you know, where you have that kind of ability to data spelunk around and, and like just poke at things and go, hey, is this useful? Is this not? <laughs> right? like those correlation causation type things. And, and I totally get it that, that you could be like, well, maybe the high-end restaurants have people that go to them with DSLRs. And then you could be like, hey, you could go to a restaurant and go, that's a partner. And you say, hey, we want to test this out. Like, can you can you get somebody that's just going to come in, pay them 20 bucks to come and take high quality photos of the food? Let's get 50 uh, restaurants in in two different cities to do that. And they do. And all of a sudden, the engagement just shoots up. It's like, okay, we've got a packaging that we can go to these customers with, right? Like your partners or whatever you want to call the restaurants in the Yelp business, that you've got that that data to back it up, but that you don't have to start from every bit of data has to be shared in high the highest of quality, right? That speculative of like, people want to be able to test this out and just kind of play around with it and see 
is this something that we should invest in? And then there's a pathway to getting that higher quality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my experience, very much the problem that I hear data engineers, well, really data engineers to a lesser extent, but data analysts and data scientists complaining about is um, lack of access more than lack of quality, at least initially. Um, Because once there's that insight, it becomes something that is much easier uh, to poke and prod on in terms of improving, uh, improving the quality overall, and also um, making sure that it's supportable, getting an SLA set. Um, Interestingly, one of the things that that you kind of mentioned, like the certification of data sets, I think is kind of interesting uh, because what we actually found was that teams were much more inclined to to publish data and maybe to um, advertise it even if they could mark some of that data as being of low quality. Um, like actually of beta quality or something like that. Um, so, so the sell on it wasn't actually being able to say like, this is the high quality data set and this is the super certified data set. It was being able to say, no, this is like the experimental alpha version. Um, if you use this, it is subject to change and it's mostly just valuable from, like you said, a spelunking perspective. Um, and th- that really resonated with teams because that was actually a problem that they had was finding that somebody had discovered their data and then, you know, started using it in production. Uh, and then all of a sudden now it's something that they've got to support versus, you know, having clear expectations set up front. Yeah. I, I heard this story and, and uh, I won't name names, but, um, a, a very, very, very large company. Um, they, uh, somebody was kind of poking around and, and in their their warehouse or their lake, they found this data set and they used it for training for something really, really crucial to the company. Like, you know, this is a many, many, you know, a billion dollar plus type of uh, product that they're using it for. And the person who created it had no idea. And they were like, that data is like six months old. Like what? And they're like, <laughs> it was high quality enough when you made it that it's great. And it's like, okay, but like, have you created the new like sets of pipelines to make sure that it's all, you know, have you created the, the, you know, or if you're thinking in data mesh uh, sense of, have you created the product to make sure that this actually has a firm backing? And how did you certify that it was high quality when you didn't talk to the person who created it? Right. So <laughs> like there are, there's so much demand out there, but I, I, I actually did an episode about this or, or part of a mesh musings about the um, the idea of a speculative data product of y- you think about um, MVP, right? Minimum viable product. There should be a stage before that to talk about, uh, you know, here's my kind of, here's what I'm thinking about bringing out. Is this going to be of any use? Does anybody want to play with this? Because if I'm going to spend the time to bring it even up to the quality of MVP, and we want to get to a place where we can make it so that it's pretty easy to put out a data product in, you know, five days, two weeks, whatever uh, of work. But we're not there in a lot of organizations yet, especially initially. And so figuring out that that kind of thing of, of not committing to I'm going to continually create this, it's like, let's actually figure out who might want to use this and that you can say, you know, okay, if I've got a consumer coming to me and saying, I want this data, okay, then we're going to design a data product that has reusability that isn't specifically bespoke to this, but that fits your use case. And then we're going to make it extensible and all that. But that there's also this like, 
is this data on the inside or is this data on the outside? What the data on the threshold that you want to you want to make it so that that teams can feel like they can share that. But how did you find that? Like it, it sounds like it, it worked well. Like did you have any mechanisms that you think that worked, or was it just like being able to be like? Hey, we're just gonna we're gonna make it so you can kind of put out crap data, and it's not that big of a deal because then people can figure out if they want this more. Well, I, I think it becomes a question of who's responsible for putting the data out, um, and what we what we weren't doing concretely is going to teams and saying, "Hey, you guys need to do this work to publish this data," because um, it's really hard to get them motivated to do it, uh, and especially to do anything that's not you know crap data, basically um, by asking them to do it when there's not a clear justification on the other side, which is super hard if it's like basically for research. Um, and this is like one of the big organizational challenges, I think, is that you're, you're basically have a research function on one hand versus a production function on the other. And the research function is effectively saying, we know that there's going to be some value in some of this data. We don't know in which, uh, and there's potentially work to unlock it. Um, the production function is kind of weighing that against, well, we are talking to customers and our customers are saying they want X and they're willing to pay Y for it. Um, and we know it'll cost Z to build. So it's much more, more um, maybe solidified in terms of what the value delivery is. And that's really what engineering organizations are set up against. So for that reason, it, it's always hard to have the same group trying to do both things. And even from a management perspective, if you try to manage researchers, uh, alongside, especially when there's only one or two researchers alongside folks that are working on more traditional product development, it's super challenging to make that work um, because it, the research teams tend to uh, really um, almost deliver value in spurts. Um, like there's some kind of insight that they have, and then there's a whole bunch of value delivery very quickly, uh, and then maybe not a whole lot for a while longer. Um, and if you're trying to measure that against like more traditional software engineering, there's m much more of a very defined value chain. Like uh, developer picks up ticket, does some work, some output comes out and delivers kind of what it said on the tin and either works or it doesn't. It's much more binary in that sense. Um, whereas I, I think in the data space, you end up with much more of these like kind of open-ended research projects where it's not necessarily clear what, what value delivery you'll get. And that makes it, you know, very challenging to get started. So what we actually were doing there is pulling the data out in an infrastructural or programmatic way initially. So Ubiquity was basically delivered by getting as much data coverage as we could through systems that we were building instead of through, you know, going out and trying to convince teams to do anything. Only once we actually found some value in that data, would we go back uh, to the engineering teams and then try to get them to productize it. Um, and a lot of times that would happen kind of naturally on its own because the engineering team had noticed that they're providing multiple feeds, where now there's downstream consumers. So they want to think about it more of an API and it becomes something that because that dependency is created and they can see the consumption, it becomes more pressing or important for them because it's, it's now quantified. Uh, and that's where the computational government governance and lineage piece, I think, comes in kind of nicely. Because um, ultimately, what you want to do basically is expose to software engineering teams, here's how your data is being used. Um, here's who's using it. Here are the consumers of it. Here's all these dashboards or reports that's being powered. Here are the decisions that are being made based on the data set that you're providing. And that visibility then, and especially if you can make some social pressure happen, so basically connect your consumers of the data back up to the producers, like that whole cycle um, should create uh, really the um, like a reinforcement structure to be able to to do the organizational cultural shift toward you know being effective with data 
Um, and, and really what we found that worked well was like asking very little until there was clear value associated with it um, and, and focusing more on infrastructure and ubiquity uh, and getting those computational governance systems in place and getting those feedback loops built up so that um, when there was an ask, it was an ask for a specific reason instead of an ask for, uh, you know, enabling a research function or something like that. Yeah. And, and this is, this is an interesting, um, trend line that I hadn't really noticed before, but like Sadie Martin on her episode was talking about kind of, um, measuring the value of your data projects and that, um, one of the things that, that she talked about was, especially when you think about kind of research type projects the value isn't in did you what was the hypothesis correct and it had this big massive value the value was driving towards proving or disproving hypotheses because when you do that if you you know unless you're really really terrible at coming up with hypotheses you're going to get better at that and so if you get to a function where you're very very good at doing that effectively, efficiently, and all of that, you're going to end up providing those huge values, whether they're in spurts or not. Um, my, my exec sponsor kind of has called me a, a serendipity engine. And that's kind of what, what you need out of research is that you're going to end up having, it's the same thing with like community management and things like this. There, there was one week um, where I, I created like five insanely high value partnership or whatever opportunities. And it was like, but if you tried to put that on me of you must generate these many or this of this type of opportunity for us, you're not going to get anything out of that. So you do have to free up the research people to do that. But like, I like the way that you're talking about it. Of It's almost like you have you, you have a, a known swamp next to your data mesh and that it's it's fine. And that what what there is, is um, the access by default approach to it. So you don't throw stuff with PII in there and that, that you could think of that as like, this is my, this, this is the, the, um, I, I'll, I'll use a gross analogy. It is the kiddie pool. So you know that there's, uh, quite a, quite a bit of, uh, kids that have peed in there, <laughs> you, you know, what, what's going on in there. Um, that it's, it's not the uh, highest of quality, uh, for, for swimming in, but that, you know, that that's, what's, what's going on. And so, um, that's, that's a really interesting potential, um, recommendation of, of like that you have something that is known low quality, but that people can get a sense for what is the, that data on the threshold that the teams might think that they might want to share and that, that you create that, that opportunity for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would even push into the security area of that a little bit because I think there's a way that you can keep things secure um, while still enabling that broad access when you need it. Um, and that is basically like if, if you can apply, you know, obviously you want to have strong permissions around anything like PII data, anything sensitive in nature. Um, but if you can apply through a governance system, you know, gates effectively where you can have users be able to really quickly uh, establish that they have a business need for the data and get access to that data, that becomes incredibly valuable. Um, because like, like I said, I think the main problem that you have in, in any kind of large-scale data organization is, is access being the, the number one thing. Because um, once you can access the data, you can then determine that it's valuable and getting it cleaned up is not, not challenging. But if you can't access it, you can't get the initial insight. Um, so, so the thing that I actually um, 
spend a lot of time thinking about is like how do you how do you get it to be secure but then also make it really effective for the person that needs access to that data make it really fast for them to be able to reach out to the upstream team and get access to it with some kind of justification. Um, and, and depending on the sensitivity of the data, it might be, you know, in some cases, okay to have the user self-certify and then audit that instead of having them go through like a, a request for permissions, have them say like, I'm accessing this data for this reason. And then it goes in an audit queue to be looked at in the next 12 hours. Um, like that kind of thing, I think like pushing the responsibility onto the person using the data where, you know, you've got clear guidelines and you're, you're actually looking at it and auditing it after the fact is a, a good way of actually kind of balancing these concerns and considerations. Uh, and I mean, that'll vary obviously from organization to organization in terms of how sensitive the data is, what the level of protection required is. Um, but I, I think that's one of those areas where computational governance, I think is going to make a huge difference uh, in the future. Well, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, Back to my conversation with Sarita Baxt, who's at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and that that's that's one where she, I think, she would be like, e -e, you know, she's not nearly as risk averse as I think a lot of people would think of, of of a governance person at a bank. But even she would be like, yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna do that. So, like, exactly what you're talking about of if you're in a space where it's not that big of a deal, or, or you do have that like. Here's the access by default. If you need the access to the PII, yeah, you've got to self-certify and we're going to lock down your ability to move that data out of this. You've, you've got your sandbox, but your sandbox gets destroyed relatively quickly or, you know, there, there isn't an ability to exfiltrate data from that sandbox, right? Like, yeah. and so, so you, you create those, those things that, that make it so that you've got pretty good assurances and you say, hey, I'm trusting you. You, you screw up, it's on your own head. Right, exactly. And I, I mean, I think there's a lot that you can do also from, a, from an automation perspective. Like in particular, like the sandboxing that you're talking about, I think is, is a good start. Um, joinability restrictions, I think is another area that's you know, pretty ripe. Like where if you know some data is sensitive, restricting the joinability of that or the writability um, into other areas so that you can pre prevent leaks. And then um, understanding uh, from a... Um, I, I suppose from like a data classification standpoint and from a lineage standpoint, how that data is being transformed and moved is I think, you know, incredibly valuable because then you, you start to have a computational understanding of this data, this new data set being derived from this existing data set. So it should inherit the same characteristics fundamentally, like it, it should have the same privacy or security controls. Um, and if that needs to change, you know, you can, you can then, you know, go through a process of certification and make that happen. Um, but it, you know, the tighter you can get that feedback loop, the, the more that you can do with it, the more you can empower your developers to have freedom um, in, in that space. Cause ultimately, I mean, what you want to do is balance uh, the velocity of your, your uh, data teams versus, um, you know, all of the, uh, other considerations uh, around governance and making that really ergonomic, I think, is is kind of critical. Yeah, I think that uh, Sarita Basque talked about this too. Of of like, once you really understand what data you're trying to share and and why, um, you know, she was talking about it for regular data products, but even in this this sense that we're talking about of kind of the research angle, you you're freed up in a lot more ways, right? Like if you inform teams as to, hey like this data could be used in this bad way, like let's be sensible around this, but 
you know, this other thing where you're not sure if that's borderline, come talk to us. And then we'll say, no, it's not borderline. You know, it's, it's totally okay to have that. And so then it's like, oh, we can free up much more access and use and stuff like that of, of just like using that, that central team to stop making the decisions and start informing the, the ability to make those decisions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think like err on the side of caution, but build out the tooling to make that work. Like one of the things that I've seen that's been super effective is just having something uh, along the lines of the, if you've ever stumbled on a Google Doc that is locked, um, it'll have a button, <laughs> a big button that shows up that says request access. Like, and just having the ability from a data perspective, uh, a user tries to query something that they don't have permissions to query or they're trying to access it in the data catalog when they don't have permission to access it, have the big request access button, do uh, some checking in the background to see whether or not, you know, that that user should fundamentally have that access or it's something that requires manual review and then automate that process like have the escalations happen to the right people without them having to get anybody involved. And you should be able to cut the time that it takes in the same way that you can request access to a Google Doc and get that access in, in minutes a lot of times uh, to the same kind of cycle time. Uh, that's really what I'm, I'm talking about. When the the people who own the data are the ones making the decision, that Mohammed Syed and I talked about the micro versus the macro of like these micro decisions keep flowing through the data governance team and they don't have enough information to properly make that micro decision. So it goes into this long backlog and it takes a, versus those micro decisions. If the, the teams that own that data know what the, the question is, boom, they 85, 90% of the time they can get to that, that like very, very quick. Okay. Yeah. We're going to give you access. Um, and those other times, yeah, they want to go to the central governance team and be like, Hey, let's make sure we're doing this in an appropriate way. But it's, it's, it's not that big of a risk if you're approaching it in the right way. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so I, I did want, you know, we, we've got a, a little bit of time left here. Uh, be, but I wanted to talk about what we talked about before, which was the, the lineage stuff. And so you've got kind of an interesting approach. I'm just going to let you kind of talk about that if you want. I, I can tee you up with, with questions, but we were kind of talking about um, my bugaboo around lineage is why, why don't we have source system data uh, in there? And we kind of talked about that immutable schemas for your, you know, what, however you're moving data, whether it's streaming or it's, or it's not, like the pipelines that there should be immutable schema that there's a referenceability and that you don't have to have it ping that reference uh, thing every single time, but that you are pushing that with what you're, you're pushing, like you're, you're pushing your, um, when it's, it's getting pushed into a new system that comes with a schema reference and somebody can look that up or however, but I, I think you've got a much tighter definition and approach to it. So if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing a little bit about how you're, you've been thinking about that and, and the, the challenges that we see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my view on it is that we we've kind of started with lineage, and I'm I'm not totally convinced that that's actually the right starting point. I kind of think that if you think about it, lineage and declarative configuration are effectively the same thing. Um, one is just causal, um, and I, I think as a general rule, if you start with something 
uh, that's causal, you'll end up getting better results. And what, what I mean by that is like um, in the Netflix case, what we were trying to do basically was, was define centrally, here's what the data movement is supposed to look like. And then we'll configure the infrastructural pieces um, to make that data move in that way. And we'll configure the transformations, we'll deploy the software and so on um, so that you get that. Uh, but what that gave us was, was basically a declarative view of what the lineage uh, should be. And that kind of draws in um, maybe the, uh, the confluence of the schema management system, like a schema store, like something like the Confluence Schema Registry for Kafka, for example, with a data governance system uh, or data catalog uh, with your lineage system. And I, I think if you've configured in that way, what you start to be able to do um, is treat the data catalog and the, the data governance and lineage system more as the declarative configuration in, instead of like an artifact. Uh, and I think if you you ultimately get into the realm where you have to be able to do something like make a schema change in an upstream system and then have that flow uh, across multiple downstream systems and understand the impact and the breakages associated, um, the, the centralization and the... Uh, the making declarative of that configuration becomes super powerful because you can then look at it um, analytically effectively and say in advance, if we make this schema change, this will be compatible with these downstream systems or not, and this will be the impact on these data sets or not. Uh, and if you have an understanding of what data is being used and how, you can then kind of create communication channels really effectively between downstream consumers that would be impacted and upstream uh, producers and back those changes in all the way up to the source systems. Um, so I, I think right now, you know, it's obviously still early days for, for data governance systems, but I think that's going to be a huge advantage, um, you know, going forward. If we can start thinking more about this governance problem as, as a configuration problem more than just a, uh, an artifact yeah, I think that's a really, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but we are kind of saying, this is this is what it is, instead of this is the way it should be. Let's test to make sure that it's going to be the way that we, <laughs> we want it to be. But um, yeah, Chris Riccomini in his, in his episode talked about at WePay, they implemented a system where the developers could test in their kind of CICD um, pre-commit phase of hey, we're, we're testing this change and it would be like, uh, you know, and it would just kind of full on block them and say, no, you can't commit this change because you're breaking this stuff. And like he said, like 80, 90% of the time, it was like, oh, we didn't know that that would cause a, a problem. So let's not do that change. Let's not drop that column because there's no real reason to drop that column. But that 10 to 20% of the time, it's like, this thing is really causing issues or we really need to change this or whatever. And so then that, kicked off a negotiation and that kicked off, you talked about earlier, um, API concept. We do need to be able to version, we do need to be able to break that downstream consumption when it makes sense. Some of that is we've just got performance concerns and like this thing is breaking our, our application. We definitely need to not make sure, you know, the data isn't more valuable in the application functioning. The data from the, if the application functioning no longer happens, then the data coming from it is not going to be very worthwhile anyway. But but like that there's that that concept of or, or if you know the complete business model has really changed or the way that that the data that should be shared about this application or this business, this domain has changed. And so we want to tell those consumers of what you've been consuming, it's not really 
relevant anymore. So we do need to break it simply because what you're consuming isn't a thing, but like conversation, like getting people in a room. You, you talked about connecting producers and consumers. People haven't done that. That's, that's like a secret <laughs> So So we had a super long conversation at Netflix early on about how we wanted to deal with us. Like, how do you deal with these breaking changes? And uh, this is a fundamentally, I think, actually an organizational cultural challenge. Because um, where we landed on it at Netflix was our culture is freedom and responsibility. Uh, and what, what that means in this context was um, we were going to show you a list of what was going to break downstream and give you a button that you could push where you could force that change if you needed to. Because um, it's it's ultimately your responsibility if you're going to make that change or not make that change. We're giving you context uh, on on what the impact of it is. But like you said, there could be circumstances. And as we were debating it, that was what was coming up. We were talking about it. It's like, well, there could be circumstances where somebody really needs to make that change. And we don't want to block it. Uh, maybe it's better to have breakage in one area than in another in some case. Uh, and if, if that's the case, like we need to, as an infrastructural organization, get out of the way and let that happen. Uh, but also make it clear, like what the what the extent of that breakage is, who's going to be impacted, what those systems are doing, and so on. Uh, and and understanding and owning that state um, centrally is almost critical in being able to actually perform that function, uh, at least in a um, very deterministic way. I mean, you can you can certainly do it in, in a more heuristic way if you have an understanding of of after the fact, like what's been happening. Um, but we could say, you know, very definitively, like if you do this, these things are definitely going to break because they're using this data. Yeah, I, I've, I've talked about this in, in a lot of episodes of like people talk about developers not having empathy for data consumers. And it's like, they can't. We literally don't put information in front of them to have this information, to be able to care. So they have to evolve their schema and they they have to be able to make these changes. And if they don't know what their changes are going to do, either they can't make changes or they have to force through the changes and then downstream consumers just deal with the consequences. So we have to flip that script as to be like, we have to give them the capability to care, right? <laughs> like if you don't know yeah. what's happening. There, there's two sides. I'd say you, you have to give them the capability to care. And also, without without understanding um, exactly what the lineage is, uh, declaratively, I believe, it, it's hard to build the tolling to minimize the breakage that could potentially happen. Like, if, if all you know is there's stuff downstream that depends on it, that's very different than knowing there's an application three layers downstream that depends on the ID of this uh, item continuing to exist and be an int. Like you can change a lot about the data as long as you don't touch that ID that the downstream system is dependent on. Um, so really, like I, I think the richer that you can get that that metadata to be, and the more consumer level information you have, um, the more capable you are of managing breakage. And that breakage management, I think, is absolutely critical, or will be critical in, in actually pushing this up to, to producers. In the same way that like you've got an API and they want to manage like who's consuming these fields and you do things like field renames and so on in order to uh, to kind of wean folks off of, of deprecated fields. Like you've got to do effectively the same set of things in the data space. It's just that we don't have the operational maturity or tooling around it in the same way that, uh, that engineering teams are used to in, uh, you know, the public API realm. And that's where, that's where we're missing still. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's weird to me how it's, it feels like it should be much more obvious and that we just have to deal with the semantic, but it's just not, the more that I talk to people, the more it's just like, it's just not, 
And it's, it's, <laughs> I, I still, I can't fully, fully understand or, or uh, grok on why, why it's so different, but it is, it just kind of is. And, and I think we need to get to that tooling side uh, uh, more because these are challenges that shouldn't be nearly as difficult as they are. And tools aren't the thing that, that solves the challenges. They're the ones that we, we figure out the issues and we, we can, leverage them to help us prevent or or tackle challenges but you know i'm not looking for tools to solve everything but we even if you have the right people process your tooling needs to be able to do this (laughs) yeah i mean fundamentally where we are today is basically at the point where you'd have to have a meeting with like the data team broadly and say we're going to change this like what do you think it might impact that's not a good place to be if you want to prevent stuff from breaking or like not drive the engineers crazy if they're trying to make changes. Like it's it's much more effective if you can say like these two fields are the ones that people are relying on and it's for this report here and like this is the business value of it and like here's the person who owns it and um, you can press this button and it'll send them a notice saying that you're going to deprecate it in six yeah. weeks or you're going to remove it at some point in the future and so on. Like. That level of automation, that's really where I think computational governance has got to step in. And that becomes then like the critical linchpin for actually making the stuff work in work in practice. Because that, that empathy piece, like that's the organizational change component. Um, and that but that doesn't exist unless you actually get people talking to each other and working together to some kind of common goal. Otherwise it's just kind of like the us versus them thing that kind of exists today. And and that doesn't um, it, w- without addressing that fundamentally, like it, it's going to be really hard to implement something like a data mesh at scale. Yeah, fully agree. And, and it's, it's, uh, you know, you ask into the void, I'm going to make this change. Is this going to break something? And it's like somebody that's like four downstream <laughs> changes, you know, oh, there's this table and then there's, you know, this augmentation and it's, you know, table two and then the augmentation they're, they're consuming table four or five down the stream. They have no idea that that change is going to break something for them. They, they, they can't know that either. And so, um, <laughs> you know, there, there is consumer driven testing and things like that. And it's like, if they have to do a bunch of work rather than your systems should tell you, this is what this is going to break. So I, I, I hope we get there. I really, really, yeah. really hope we do. I think the other thing that's interesting about that is if you think about it from a persona's perspective, the user at the very end of that is often somebody in something like the C-suite. Um, and, and the thing that's going to break them, it probably isn't even apparent or obvious at that level. Like, And they certainly are not going to know about it. And the breakage may not be like, oh, it just stopped working. It's probably going to be more insidious. Like, oh, we're suddenly getting results that are just slightly off. So we're just making worse decisions for the business as a whole. And we don't really understand that. But then somebody's going to turn up six months later and downplay it. And um, yeah, we're not in a good place then. Uh, and like, that's how you end up with all of these challenges too around like trustability of data. Like if, if you don't manage that process well, then trying to be a more data-driven organization too becomes like much, much harder. And that's, you know, in, in part why I'd say like, you're probably better off starting with with like just simpler ubiquity. And then as you develop value, like focusing in on those specific areas, getting those to be really, really solid, get developing the change management muscle and then expanding outward from there. Yeah. Abe Gong talked about in his episode, uh, you know, around great expectations. He talked about like, that those expectations are the thing like, so you don't have that insidious change of like, Hey, we're expecting this to be one to 10. And, and all of a sudden the range is only, you know, you might have something where you're expecting 
maybe this is where we need like model monitoring and things like that, you know, where maybe that it was, you're expecting one to 10 and it starts to have things that are above 10 or, or, you know, zeros or whatever, or nulls. And, and it's like, okay, that's, that's an issue. But if you were expecting one to 10 and you're all of a sudden it's going one to five is, are you going to have that detection? So you need kind of both of the uh, observability side of like, what, what is our um, distribution of these values? And has that distribution changed significantly? Is that because the world has changed or because we've changed the way that we're computing this and it's no longer relevant or whatever. So, yeah. 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 That, that actually um, reminds me of one other thing, which is like, because this has come up a ton in, in data mesh conversations and in data conversations generally, like which, which do you optimize for? Do you optimize for like trying to get it right up front um, or do you optimize for change? Um, and, and my argument has always been that you have to optimize for change because um, even if you take the time and, and make the investment to get all of your data right up front, the business isn't static uh, and it's never going to be static. And as the business changes, the data is going to change and the meaning is going to change and the semantics around it are going to change. So you fundamentally need an adaptive process. And if you have an adaptive process, you need to care a lot less about getting the data right initially because you then have a process where you can iterate on it really fast. And this kind of goes into what you were talking about earlier too around, around research. And the thing that you actually want to optimize for and that is learning. Like, are we learning fast enough? How do we get the rate of learning faster um, rather than, than the output of that? Um, and in the same way, I think if you get this right, you you end up optimizing um, almost for that for that meta principle. Like, how quickly can we evolve the data into what it needs to be once we develop some insight rather than, you know, broadly, how much data do we have that has such and such coverage? You know, that's much less relevant than, than if we develop you know, we find some some gold, like how fast can we mine it is a much more interesting picture than how fast can we, you know, mine everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and I would even push back on change versus getting it right. And, and I would say change plus trustability, right? And so you don't need to get the data right. You just need to tell people that that this is the level to which you can trust it. And so that you are optimizing for that, like being able to evolve, evolve, evolve. And so that you're not spending too much time on stuff that's not of, of value, but that you you have that like, okay, I actually can trust this or I can't trust it. And, and I can trust that I know how much I can trust it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mind blown kind of thing. But well, this has been so, so phenomenal. Sorry, I, I, we, we went over a little bit to the, the no agreed worries. upon time. But um, so is there anything we didn't cover that you think uh, is something that, that people, you know, or, or do you have a button that you want to wrap up the, the thing on? Of, Here is my exact, uh, my philosophy <laughs> or can <laughs> you solve data mesh for folks in, in, in you know, a minute or so? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything like that. Um, I, I mean, I would... I would say like the number one thing that I would focus on is keeping things simple and make sure that you've got value delivery. Um, Cause fundamentally, if you don't have value delivery, nothing else matters. And, and um, you don't need a ton of breadth for value delivery. You don't need super high quality data initially for value delivery. Um, you, you need broad enough data that you can get a team of analysts in to start developing insight. And once you start developing that insight, the rest kind of follows a bit naturally because like, like back to what you were saying just a second ago, like if you find that data that's, uh, you know, marked as being of low quality or you can't really trust, but somebody finds some insight in there, it then is much easier to say, well, let's clean this up. Um, because the cleanup and then is saying like, 
we have something that could potentially be this valuable, um, but we're not sure if we can trust this data. So it becomes a much more um, tractable bet. And I think I think viewing it as um, a series of steps that you can take to improve and make those tractable bets will be more um, more likely to succeed, I suppose, than than you know trying to make large scale organizational transformation without that value delivery super clearly defined. Yeah, and I think this is the uh, common through line for almost all the conversations of the people who are having success with data mesh implementations is kind of that that um, think big, start small, move fast type of concept. But like, really, what it means is like you can build muscle. You don't have to get it perfect. You don't have to nail it. You're you're finding places where you can have a high return on investment because you've got a low investment. Uh, and and so you might have a moderate return, but you don't go for the thing that has the massive, massive potential return. But the investment is twelve months and all that you know that that you start to figure out how to do this, and that you can make this repeatable, and that then you can start to tackle you know you start chunk it up, but you start to tackle more and more difficult challenges. But until you figure out how to do this. You, you're just going to fail if you, if you just try and run headlong into your most difficult challenge. So, yeah, I, I think I think this is uh, really helpful in, in in a lot of that. And I think especially um, you know somebody who's who's done it in organizations who haven't been focused on specifically you know the you know quote unquote definition of data mesh of like, but how, how do we actually get to an organization where? we can achieve what data mesh is trying to achieve data mesh. I don't care if you call it data mesh or whatever, you know, I tell people literally if they're talking to other orgs to call it unicorn farts. So they, they get data mesh out of their mouth that they're not trying to go and say, we're going to do data mesh and data mesh solves our problems. It's we're going to, we're going to put the resources and the capabilities in the hands of the people who know the data best to be able to deliver it in such a way that people can understand it and trust it and use it. And then we're going to give the people who want to consume that data the capability to you know, understand and trust that data and then access it and use it and actually do that. And we're going to raise the bar of, of those people. And we're, we're going to make it so that we're not locking ourselves into the enterprise data warehouse model and stuff like that. So it, it just it, 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 it's something that it's funny how much even Jamac and, and, and I both talk about how data mesh is trying to achieve something. If you're just doing data mesh for the sake of data mesh, you're gonna, you're gonna fail, right? Like, it's an approach. It's, it's, and we're still figuring out exactly how to do it, right? We're figuring out those, those good ways and those bad ways. And, and that's kind of the point of the podcast is to extract this information of what have people learned? Like, wh- what have they seen work? What have they seen not work and, and move from there? Awesome. Makes total sense to me. Yeah. So uh, if people want to follow up with you, uh, just in general, best place to find you, Twitter, LinkedIn, where, where do you want people reaching out? Yeah, LinkedIn would definitely be the best place. Okay. And, and what would you want people following up with you about? You know, I mean, this, that's a broad question, but like, what do you find the most interesting? Or is there anything in here where you're like, I really want people to follow up with me about, you know, XYZ topic? Uh, if folks have interest in the data governance topic, I'd love to talk more about that in particular. Um, and, and 
in general, I suppose, um, just challenges in the data space. Like I'm always interested in, in challenges that companies are running into in the data space, especially with implementing this stuff, because I've, I've done the implementations a few times and some of it I know is super hard um, to build out. So where folks are getting stuck, I think, is is an opportunity potentially to, um, you know, rethink rethink how you do infrastructure in that area. And that's an area that I'm, I'm personally interested in at this point. Awesome. Okay. Well, this has been so uh, great. I think it's going to be very useful in kind of framing how people can think about these things and kind of what you've seen has worked. So um, I really want to thank you for the time and thanks everybody for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Justin Cunningham. As per usual, you can find a link to his LinkedIn page in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest, you know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.